So the first book in the Bible, most all of you know, is the book of Genesis. And the theme of the first book of the Bible, you may not know, and that is the promise of the Messiah, the promised Messiah. The book of Genesis says that God has promised to raise up a nation, a great nation, the children of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, the children of Israel, and that through this nation, the Messiah is going to be born, brought to earth. And the Messiah, that all those promises are fulfilled in Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, born on the earth 2,000 years ago, and one of the reasons he came was to die on the cross to pay for the sins of everyone who will trust him so that we can be completely forgiven for all of our sins, can experience that guilt just lifting off of us and God's assuring and pardoning love pouring down upon us so we can be completely forgiven for all of our sins and best of all, reconciled to God. So we know the God we were created to enjoy and delight in. The the joy and the love we've been looking for all of our lives is found in God. And because Jesus came, we can be forgiven so we can know God. So that's the the focal point of the book of Genesis, this, this promise of the Messiah. And that promise of the Messiah is repeated all through the book of Genesis. Not only is it repeated through the book of Genesis, in Genesis we see God protecting this promise and safeguarding this promise. That's what he does, like through the life of Abraham. Remember, the Messiah was going to be born of the people of Israel, the children of Abraham, and so God is protecting Abraham, providing for Abraham through those years of Abraham's life. And he does the same thing with Isaac, brings Isaac a beautiful, wonderful wife, Rebekah, because it's going to be through Isaac and Rebekah that the nation of Israel is going to be born. And then God does the same thing for Jacob, for example, protecting Jacob from Esau. Remember that story? And that's what we're going to see now also in the life of Joseph, which is where the book of Genesis ends up. Through the life of Joseph, how does God safeguard and protect this promise? He does this by providing food for the people of Israel when they face a severe famine that lasts for seven years. Now, how did God, in the life of Joseph, provide food for the people of Israel? It's an amazing story. So let me just give you a brief recap. Remember, Joseph had a couple of dreams, and in these dreams, his family members and brothers were bowing down to him, and his brothers were so jealous and angry about that dream that they sold Joseph into slavery. But this is all part of God's plan, because as Joseph was, in, was a slave in Egypt, he was unjustly accused of trying to rape Potiphar's wife and thrown into prison, But that was also all part of God's plan because in prison, Joseph met Pharaoh's chief baker and cupbearer who both had dreams and God gave Joseph the ability to interpret those dreams and just as he interpreted them, they happened. In three days, the baker was killed by Pharaoh but the cupbearer was returned to his position as being the cupbearer in Pharaoh's household. And that was all according to God's plan. Because when Pharaoh had some very troubling dreams and none of his wise men could interpret it for him, the cupbearer told Pharaoh, I know somebody who can interpret dreams. Joseph in prison. So Pharaoh summoned Joseph out of prison. It's an amazing story. Joseph woke up in prison one day. Then that that day, he's before Pharaoh. Pharaoh tells him the dreams and Joseph, by God's supernatural gifting, gives him the interpretation. Remember the interpretation? Joseph said that God is going to bring 
seven years of prosperous harvest to Egypt. And then after those seven years of prosperity, prosperous harvest, there's going to be seven years of severe famine that's going to come. And then Joseph took the liberty of giving Pharaoh some advice. He said, I suggest that you find somebody that you can put in charge of all of your food, have them gather the extra harvest during those seven good years and store it away so that you'll have food to eat during the seven years of severe famine. And Pharaoh said, who do we have as wise as you? You are in charge of the food. So that morning, Joseph woke up in prison. That night, he goes to bed, the number two man over all of Egypt, with all of the Egyptians, wherever he would go, bowing down before him, and him having authority over all the food in Egypt, so that when God's people face famine, God is going to safeguard God's people, protect the promise of the Messiah being born through the people by giving them the food that they need to survive the famine. And that brings us to where we are this morning. Because in today's passage, Moses wants to describe the seven years of plenty. And let's take a look, verses 47 to 49 of Genesis chapter 41, and ask the question, just how prosperous were these seven years of plenty? This is amazing. So remember, we're working on how to study the Bible here at Grace Church. And one thing we want to be paying attention to is words that are repeated because that helps us understand what the authors want to emphasize. And notice what's repeated in verses 47 through 49. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, and he, Joseph, gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. Now get verse 49. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance. So the word abundance repeated, but now it's great abundance. Like the sand of the sea. How abundant is that? Until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. So this is a massive harvest, just as God had promised through Joseph's interpretation, this is seven years of bountiful harvest, overflowing food, so much food they stopped measuring it, it can't be measured, they just kept storing it, storing it, storing it, massive prosperity of food. Next, Moses, the author, wants to tell us about so what's going on with Joseph during these seven years of plenty, and look at what we read in verses 50 to 52. Now, nothing's repeated here, but there are other ways that an author can emphasize something without repeating the same words. So look at what Moses, the author, emphasizes, verses 50 to 52. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. His wife's name was Asenath. Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, this is Joseph's wife, Asenath, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second son he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So not a lot of repetitions here except for the fact that we're, we're highlighting the name of each of these sons because these names are important. Moses highlights them and says what they mean. So the first son, 
Joseph names Manasseh, which sounds like the Hebrew word for forget. And the reason Joseph named his first son Manasseh was because he wants to help everybody understand, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. Now that does not mean that Joseph forgot his father and his brothers and and all of his family. It means that God so comforted Joseph that he forgot the pain and the hardship of being so far away from them for so many years. God had so poured his comfort. And I just want to just take a little pause here and because I would guess that some of you right now have not, are not experiencing this. You are still grieving, sorrowing over something, and you'll never forget entirely about it, but God can, and many of you have experienced this, God can so comfort you that while you don't forget the details, you have forgotten the pain. You're comforted. You're filled. That's what God did for Joseph. He had so met him. We don't have the details as to exactly how, but... As we seek the Lord, as we pray, as we read his word, as we fellowship with brothers and sisters, as we worship God, he pours his love so powerfully into our hearts that we are, we forget the pain of things because we have him filling us and satisfying us. That's the name Manasseh. Second son, Ephraim, which sounds like the Hebrew word for fruitful, and Joseph simply wants to proclaim to people how God has made him fruitful in the land of his affliction. He's fruitful. Look at these two sons. God's making me fruitful here. So God has blessed Joseph. Not only is there prosperity in Egypt with food, there is also God blessing Joseph with comfort and with sons. So that's what Moses is pointing out to us so far. But next then, Moses wants to help us feel how bad the the famine was. How bad was the famine? Verses 53 to 50. Seven, start with verse 53. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread, at least at, least at first, because verse 55, then when all the land of Egypt was famished, so the bread ended up running out in Egypt as well, The people of Egypt cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph, what he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. How bad was the famine? At first it was just outside of Egypt. Then it affected Egypt as well, so much so that the people were crying out, Pharaoh, we're out of food. So do whatever Joseph says. So they bought food from Joseph. Egypt had food. And then the famine was spreading to all the lands. It was severe. And so everyone was coming to Egypt from all over the place to buy food. Now think about this. If the famine was severe over all the earth, then it was also severe in the land of Canaan, just north of Egypt, right? But if there's a severe famine amongst God's people in Canaan, if they're running out of food up there, then that means that the promise of the Messiah is put in jeopardy because God promised that through the people of Israel, the Messiah was going to be born. But if the people of Israel are destroyed by a famine, then there's going to be no birth of the Messiah. Do you see the problem? 
And yet, once again, God is safeguarding and protecting the promise of the Messiah. So next, Moses tells us what happens with the people of Israel. In chapter 42, verse 1, the author shifts focus from Egypt and Pharaoh to the land of Canaan and Jacob and the people of Israel. And look at what happens. Verse 1. When Jacob, Joseph's father in Canaan, learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I've heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. See what's at stake here? Whether they're going to live or die. If they don't get food from somewhere, they're going to die, which jeopardizes the promise of the Messiah. Verse 3, so 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might, come, might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. So the people of Israel faced severe famine. If they couldn't find food, they would die. Now, we have a hard time getting in touch with famine, right? I mean, if you're hungry, if you need some food, you know, certainly Lulu's is going to have it. And if Lulu's doesn't have it, then like Carrefour, maybe Spinney's, right? But you just find the store right, where you can buy food. We don't understand about famine. But imagine that you lived in a society, an agrarian society, where you ate what you grew. See that field out there? Okay? If nothing sprouts up, you're going to die. So you're planting seed, you know, you're praying for rain, right? There's sun, you're concerned about maybe too much sun and no rain. You're concerned about locusts coming in. And if locusts come, if there's too much sun, if there's no rain, then you will starve. This is what's going on here. And so this is a desperately serious situation that the people of Israel are facing. But God was not worried. God had this all planned out. He not only knew this was going to happen, he had planned that this was going to happen. And he had planned for how the people of Israel were going to survive this happening. God has secured the promise of the Messiah by selling Joseph into slavery ahead of time. One of the people of Israel sold into slavery. Having, them be, having Joseph then be thrown into prison where he met the cupbearer and the baker and interpreted their dreams. So that when Pharaoh had his dreams, Pharaoh would hear about Joseph interpreting dreams so that Pharaoh would want Joseph to interpret his dreams so that when Joseph interpreted Pharaoh's dreams, Joseph would become promoted to the number two man over all of Egypt in charge of all the food that was there in the world at the time. That was what God did for the people of Israel through Joseph. God was not worried. God had this all planned out. So the next question is, what happens when the ten brothers meet Joseph in Egypt? Remember, remember the setting here. What had Joseph's brothers done to him? They had sold him into slavery. They decided, let's not kill him. We can make some money. So they sold him instead of killing him. Thank you, brothers. Okay, so they sold him into slavery in Egypt. And now they were assuming he was dead because that's what happened to slaves in, in Egypt. But Joseph is not dead. He is the number two man in Egypt. He's over all the food. In Egypt. He's the one they're going to deal with when they buy food from Egypt. So, how do you think Joseph responds when he meets them? 
Now, we would think, well, Joseph would just say, I'm Joseph. Remember? Last time you saw me, I was going away with slave traders. You sold me. I forgive you, men. You did wrong. But here's food. Take it. Head back. Tell my father Jacob hello for me. Give Benjamin a big hug and a kiss for me. Don't sell anybody into slavery again. Goodbye. Or something like that. That's what we might think he would do, all right? It's not what he does. How does Joseph respond to his brothers? This is what Moses wants us to focus on because Joseph responds to his brothers in a way that is puzzling. Very puzzling. Look at what happens. Verse 5. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves down before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. So Moses wants us to be clear. He knew who they were. These are my brothers. He recognized them. But he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said, from the land of Canaan, to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers. Moses wants to make sure. Joseph knows who these guys are. Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them, of them bowing down. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land, that is, military points of vulnerability. So he accused them, you're spies. You know what happens to spies in countries? Death. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We're all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you've come to see. Do you see how puzzling this is? We should be puzzled at this point. And they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. Behold, the youngest, Benjamin, is this day with our father, and one, Joseph, is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother, Benjamin, comes here. Send one of you, let him bring your brother, while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you or else, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. Now, can you feel how strange this is? This is, this is very puzzling here. He treats them like strangers, although he knows them. He speaks roughly to them, even though they are his brothers. He asks where they came from, even though he knows where they came from. He accuses them of being spies, even though he knows they're not spies. He demands that they bring their youngest brother, Benjamin, to Egypt to show that they're telling the truth, even though he knows they're telling the truth. And he puts them in custody for three days. Now, why does Joseph respond this way? That's like the big question from this passage and from the next couple of chapters of Genesis. And boy, our home group, we had a good time wrestling with this one. So we had people, very different opinions, and 
We had some people who thought that Joseph was responding out of anger and revenge against his brothers, and there are commentators who argue that way. Um, that basically Joseph was angry, he was just getting back at him. There's a couple of reasons I don't think that's what's going on here. One is if Joseph wanted to get back at him, there's just a lot easier way to do it. I'm Joseph, you guys are gonna rot in jail the rest of your lives. I'll have somebody else take food back to your family, goodbye. Done, right, move on. Very simple if you wanted to do the revenge thing. Pharaoh would have said, they sold into slavery? Life imprisonment's too good for them. Let's make it worse. Anyway, so you understand, Joseph had the authority to do that. Another reason I, I don't think that's what Moses wants us thinking in terms of why Joseph is doing this is because I couldn't find any clues in the passage to show us that that was Joseph's motivation. Yes, he spoke harshly, but the question we're asking is, why did he speak harshly? Was he harsh towards them, or was this something he was just doing for another reason? And all Moses has shown us of Joseph's life up to this point is this is a godly, humble, God-trusting man. It's all we've seen from, we've seen, I mean, he wasn't perfect, he was a sinner like we all are, but he was a godly man growing in holiness, growing in sanctification. One beautiful example, remember when Potiphar's wife was trying to seduce him? Day after day after day after day after day, Joseph said, no, 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 no. Remember the story? This godly man, strong, God-loving, God-trusting man. So all that Moses has showed us so far about Joseph is that he's a godly man. But Jan pointed out at the home group about chapter 41 to verse 51. Here's another clue that Moses gives us. Remember, this is where Joseph says about his son Manasseh, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. If Joseph has forgotten the pain of what he's experienced, then he's not nurturing bitterness towards his brothers for what he's experienced, right? Do you see that? That's one of the reasons I think Moses wants to highlight the name of his first son Manasseh. If he has forgotten not what happened, but the pain of what's happened, then it's like he's content, he's forgiven, he's free from that. That's what God can do in our hearts. That's what God did in Joseph's heart. So I, I don't think Moses wants us thinking that Joseph was doing this out of anger or revenge. So why is he doing it? And I think Moses gives us two clues. See if this makes sense to you. If you study this on your own, we're all studying the scriptures on our own here at Grace Church. But I think we have two clues. One clue is that through the whole story of Joseph so far, the picture Moses has painted of Joseph's brothers is that they are a wicked, sinful bunch. Here's what we've seen so far. Simeon and Levi, the second and third born, deceive and slaughter the men of Shechem. Remember that story? This bloodthirsty, just lied to them and then slaughtered them. Genesis 34, verse 25. Reuben sleeps with his fa- one of his father's wives, the firstborn. Reuben sleeps with one of Jacob's wives. Joseph's brothers then are so jealous of him that all of them except Reuben decide to sell him into slavery and then Judah, remember the whole chapter given to Judah's sinfulness, Judah leaves his family, marries a Canaanite woman, 
lies to his daughter-in-law and sleeps with a woman he thinks is a temple prostitute with one of the false gods of the people of Canaan. So the picture we've had of Joseph's brothers so far is not pretty. Do you get this, Grace Church? I mean, this is like, wow, these guys are like trouble. And yet, these are going to be the leaders of the 12 tribes of the nation that's going to bring forth the Messiah. I mean, with all this division and all this bitterness and all this rancor and all this problem, all this sin, that's a problem. It's a big problem. And so I think careful readers are going to wonder, how are these guys going to be the leaders of the people of Israel who are going to give birth to the to the Messiah. And so one clue is there's a problem with Joseph's brother's wickedness. So keep that clue in the back of your mind. The other clue is to notice, yes, Joseph has puzzling behavior towards his brothers, but when does that behavior stop? At what point does it stop where he says, I'm Joseph? Remember that happened. We're going to see that in the next few weeks. So what happens before it stops? And what we're going to see in these next chapters is that God uses Joseph's puzzling behavior to convict his brothers of their sin. And we see growing conviction through these chapters until at the very end, Judah, who's one of the worst of the bunch, remember Judah, that was all chapter 38, I think it was, says, we've sinned, I've sinned, comes clean, which is a picture of what all, all the brothers are experiencing. And so I think the point is that the reason Joseph is behaving in this puzzling way is because God is using his puzzling behavior to bring the brothers to conviction and to repentance for their sin. We see a picture of that in this passage right here for today, start in verse 18. You see an example of this, how this starts. On the third day, remember they're all in custody. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God, if you're honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody. That might have been a reminder of like what they did to Joseph years ago. We weren't sure. Let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified and you shall not die as spies. And they did so. And I look at how they respond. Again, remember, they don't know this is Joseph in front of them. Joseph, that happened years ago. But look at what they say here in verse 21. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother Joseph. Where'd that come from? Right? I mean, this is years ago they sold Joseph into slavery. He's gone. All of a sudden, we were, we were guilty, guys, about Joseph. See, the Holy Spirit is somehow using Joseph's words and actions to bring conviction to them of their sin. This is the first hint we have of any conviction in their hearts about what they did with Joseph. In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. In that, and then they, they, they replay what happened. We saw the distress of his soul when he begged us Think of this 17-year-old Joseph. Don't send me into slavery. What are you thinking? I'm your brother. I love you. What? You're going to sell me into slavery? Brothers, no, 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 no. Right? We saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. Now again, 
The Holy Spirit is bringing all this back into their minds and convicting them. You are guilty. You are guilty. And they say, we are guilty. In truth, we are guilty. One commentator said that he thought this is the most powerful description of any person's uh, conviction of sin anywhere in the Bible is right here. Maybe that's true. They did not know this was Joseph. Joseph told them, one of you has to stay here in Egypt. The rest will take the food back, bring Benjamin back. But see, they knew, the brothers knew, this was going to cause this one brother great distress who's going to be staying in custody in Egypt. This was going to cause them distress to leave him enslaved in Egypt, or in custody in Egypt. And they were going to cause their father great distress to say, we've got to take Benjamin back to Egypt. So all of this distress is bringing conviction to them of the distress that they brought to Joseph years before. Keep going in verse 22. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? Reuben was the one guy who said, Let's not do this. But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They, th- they all think he's, he's been killed. They did not know that Joseph understood them for there was an interpreter between them. This has all been going on through Joseph speaking Egyptian and then the, the person interpreting it to them, even though Joseph totally knows the language. Okay, this is this whole thing to bring conviction upon them. So they did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he, Joseph, turned away from them and wept to see his brothers convicted of their sin, to see God working in his brothers' lives. He just started to weep. And he returned to them and spoke to them. Then he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Might that have been a picture of what they did to him years before? And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack. So each of them had brought money to buy food from Egypt. We'd like to buy food. Here's a lot of money for you. Well, the money they brought was put back in each of their sacks. And then Joseph gave them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place after they had traveled for a while, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? In other words, they're afraid at this point, we're going to be accused of stealing, right? We brought money to buy food. We were honest guys. Now it looks like like we're going to take that money back and we're heading back with the food and the money. We didn't buy it. We're going to be accused of, of stealing. And God uses that to increase their conviction. We have done wrong. God is disciplining us. We're in trouble, men. That's what they're coming away with here. So can you see how God uses in this first section Joseph's puzzling words and actions to start to bring for the first time conviction to the brothers about their sin and that continues in chapter 43 and that continues through chapter 44 and then in chapter 45 it changes. Conviction's growing, chapter 45 it changes. And Joseph tells them who he is. We'll we'll get there. I won't give you too many spoilers ahead of time. So we're asking why Joseph is acting in such a puzzling way. And the fact that Moses highlights 
the brothers' sinfulness. These are a dastardly group of guys. And then the fact that we see Joseph's puzzling behavior stop once they reach conviction, once they repent of their sins, makes me think that Joseph is doing this in order to bring his brothers to conviction, to repentance, to restoration to God. That's Joseph's longing. And doesn't that fit what we've seen of Joseph? Joseph is a godly man. Joseph would be prone to, we'd think he would forgive his brothers. We'd think he would long for his brothers to repent and get reconciled to God. And that's what I think is happening here. And we're going to see that continue in these next few, few chapters. So there's our passage for today. Now, what does this mean for us here today in Abu Dhabi? in the summer, the hot summer of July in Abu Dhabi. I want to give you two takeaways. As I've prayed over this passage and just thought, Lord, what, what are you saying to us through this? First takeaway, I want to encourage you to ask God to convict you of, of sin. Now, here, here's why. If Moses takes three chapters, if God takes three chapters, if God uses Joseph's puzzling actions, if, if it's that important to see these brothers brought to conviction of sin, then conviction of sin must be very important. And I want you to feel this morning the importance of being convicted for our sin. What does it mean to be convicted for our sin? Just like we saw the brothers saying, in truth, I am guilty before God. I've sinned before God. In truth, I am guilty. Is that something that you have said and are saying? Yes, we're forgiven, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't still be convicted that in myself I am guilty. Is that in your heart? Have you said and are you saying, in truth, I am guilty? Now, there's, there's at least two reasons this is so important for us to have as part of our hearts. Now, I want to stress this because I would guess that some of you here this morning do not have that in your hearts. But here's at least two reasons why that's important. One reason is the only way you can be saved from your sins and forgiven through Jesus is if you're convicted of your sin. It's the only way. If you haven't said before God, in truth, I am guilty before you, and acknowledge that my guilt is so great that I can't do anything to make up for it, no church attendance, no religious rituals, no being better than most people, no, well, I just try to treat everybody well, none of that can make up for sin against an infinitely holy and righteous God. We all should be saying in our hearts, in truth, I am guilty before God. I can't do anything to save myself. I face God's judgment unless God does something astonishing and brings me a savior, I am undone. That's conviction of sin. And then the beautiful news is, you know, God has done just that. God sent Jesus. Jesus, fully man and fully God, came 2,000 years ago. And he died on the cross to pay for the sins of all who will trust him. And so the moment that you put your trust in Jesus, the moment you come to Jesus Christ and say, in truth, I am guilty before God. I cannot save myself. I can't be good enough to overcome this. I'm facing judgment forever I cast myself before your mercy, Jesus. Forgive me and save me. And it's that casting yourself at Jesus' feet without knowing that you have nothing to recommend you to him. No goodness counts before him. Nothing you do you know, lessens the odds of your judgment. 
In truth, I am guilty before God and you cast yourself at Jesus' feet and he will pick you up and he will embrace you and he will say, my daughter, my son, you are forgiven. All your sins are forgiven through my death on the cross. My power is going to start changing you right this moment and you will feel God's power start to overcome sin in your life and my presence will fill and satisfy your heart fully now and forever. The joy you've been looking for all your life, it's in me, it is yours forever. And that flows from conviction. So here's the deal. There is a danger sometimes of people thinking that they've become Christians and been saved because they were told if you trust Jesus, you won't be lonely anymore. Well, that is true. Jesus is a friend closer than a brother. His love is better than life. And he can fill you when you are at your loneliness. But if, if that's the only reason you came to Jesus was because I'm lonely and I'd like to never be lonely again and there's no conviction of sin in the process, you've missed the whole point of salvation. Does that make sense? Or if you've, if you've come to Jesus just because you thought, you know, I, I just I feel insecure and I feel weak around people, but I've heard that Jesus will make me secure and maybe not feel so weak around people, so Jesus, I trust you. Well, he does that, doesn't he? He makes us secure because of his great love for us, but if that's the reason you came to faith in Christ and if there was no conviction for sin and your need of a Savior who died on the cross to save you, then you have not been saved yet. And oh, I don't want anybody here to think you've been saved if you haven't been saved. That would, be, that would be the worst thing. Has there been conviction of sin? Have you come to the place where you've said, in truth, I am guilty before God and I can't do anything to make up for it. Jesus, I cast myself at your feet. Have mercy upon me. Remember the, remember the man, uh, I think it was a blind man, Jesus Son of David, have mercy upon me. Remember that in the, in the Gospels? If there's been no conviction of sin where you've said, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy upon me. I deserve ch judgment forever. Would you forgive me? Just out of your sheer mercy. I don't deserve anything good from you. Just I'm asking for mercy. I'm asking for, for grace. And when you come that way, there's just a, a flood of mercy and grace that comes upon you. You're filled with mercy and grace. But to get that, there has to be the conviction of sin. Have you been convicted of your sin? That's one reason conviction is so important. It's because you can't be saved without it. So if you don't have conviction of sin, ask Jesus for it. Would you show me my sin? Would you convict me of sin right now? If you mean that from your heart, he will. He will. And then put your trust in him and you'll be completely forgiven. So that's one reason conviction is so important. Second reason, remember the woman who came to uh, the Pharisee's house where Jesus was having lunch and fell down at Jesus' feet and, and, and weeping, washed his feet with her tears and dried them with her hair? Remember that story? Um, and I won't tell the whole thing now for the sake of time, but, but Jesus says in Luke 7, 47 to the Pharisee, he says, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who was forgiven little, like you Pharisee think, you just need to be forgiven little. He was forgiven little, loves little. One of the implications of that passage is the more we see how much we've sinned, the more we will love Jesus our Savior. If you don't love Jesus much, 
I can almost guarantee you the reason is that you don't see your sin much. And that is a dangerous, dangerous place to be because, don't want to offend you, but you have sinned much as I have. We all have. And Jesus is your Savior and he's standing before you saying, own it, own it, and come to me. And he will smile and hold you and forgive you and cleanse you and fill you and change you, but you've got to own it first. And the more we see our sin, then the more we will love our Savior. So believers who are already forgiven need to nurture a sense of conviction for our sin because that will help us to love Jesus all the more. So ask God to convict you of sin. You will be saved as you put your trust in Jesus as a result of that conviction, and you'll love Jesus all the more if you've already been saved. Second takeaway from this passage. Understand that nothing can stop God's promise of salvation through Jesus. We're seeing this taught all through the book of Genesis. We see it again here. Seven years of famine threatened the people of Israel through whom the Messiah was going to be born. God did not let that stop the promise of the Messiah by raising up Joseph, taking him to Egypt, putting him in charge of the food so the people of Israel would be fed. It's beautiful over these next chapters. We're going to watch how God blesses the people of Israel in Egypt. You're going to see that. But God overcame that problem. The brothers' sinfulness was another problem. This wicked bunch of guys, and God used Joseph's behavior, words, to bring conviction to them so that they were changed and brought to repentance. So again, in this passage we see nothing can stop God's promise of salvation through Jesus the Messiah. And that applies to you. If you're trusting Jesus, then you have been saved and you will be saved. If you are trusting Jesus Christ right now as your Savior, your Lord, your treasure, you have been saved and you will be saved. He will, as Paul says, continue the good work that he started in you. He will continue that work. He will keep you from stumbling. Jude chapter 1, verse 24 and 25. He will keep you from stumbling. When you do fall into sin, he will change your heart and bring you back. Wash you clean. Put you back on the road. The good work he started, he will do. So, he will bring you to heaven. If you are trusting Jesus Christ right now, it is absolutely guaranteed that you will be in heaven, filled with the joy of seeing him face to face, worshiping him with redeemed from every nation, tongue, and tribe. Because you're trusting Jesus right now, you can know 100% certainly that he is going to keep you going all the way to the end. Your destiny is heaven. So let that certainty free you now to live lives of sacrificial, risk-taking love for the sake of the lost and God's people. Look at your future. It is set. Ever-increasing joy forever. Life is short. Eternity is at stake. Let's live lives of risk-taking, sacrificial love for, the, for each other and for those who don't know Christ all around us because nothing can stop God's promise of salvation through the Messiah. Let's stand together.
I pray, Lord, that you would touch the hearts of those in this room who do not feel conviction of sin right now. They're not saying, in truth, I am guilty. Oh, Father, by your grace, in your mercy, help them see. Help them see you in all of your glory and righteousness and holiness and help them see that in truth they are guilty as we all are. Please, Lord. So that they will lay aside relying on their own goodness to save them. They'll lay aside religious observance to save them and they will cling to Jesus to save them. Do that right now, Lord, I pray. And then, Lord, for believers here whose love for you has weakened over the past months or years, Lord, that you'd bring them to a fresh place of seeing that they have sinned much so that they would see that they've been saved much so that they would love Jesus much. Do that now, Lord, I pray. And Lord, I pray that you would strengthen all of our confidence that because we're trusting Christ that you will not let anything stop your promise of salvation for those who trust Christ that our destiny is secure, our eternity is set, everlasting joy awaits. You will bring us there infallibly, unstoppably. You will bring us there. And so, Lord, then free us to love, to care, to share our testimonies, to do all we can for those around us. Work this in us, I pray in Jesus' name.